guest is a curator of a museum in South Bend, Indiana. Thank you so much for having me on your show today. My name is Christy Erickson, and my title here at the History Museum is Deputy Executive Director. Though, as you mentioned, I am certainly a curator at heart. I was curator here at the Oliver Mansion, which is part of our campus, for 10 years before I became deputy director. I've been at this museum for 13 years, and the St. Joseph River especially is an enormous part of the development of that history. Lived here for 38 years. Bachelor's degree is in anthropology at Purdue. Master's degree is in archaeological studies from Yale University. That waterway going through town has always been part of life, and it's been interesting to me. You drive around town with your parents when you're a kid, and you drive over the river, but you don't understand what it means to the city, much more about the history of the area and um, how important the river is to it. It takes on a whole new meaning every time I see it. Your understanding of the place where you grew up really changes as you learn about its history. Has the St. Joseph River situated itself in any of your family stories or history? A bit. You know, everyone in the area has some stories of the river, usually with regards to recreational activities. I remember when I was a kid, we were told not to swim in the St. Joseph River because it wasn't clean enough. And I remember my grandmother telling me, that she used to sit on the dock with her friends and watch the turds float by. It, we're very fortunate that the Clean Water Act and, and other laws have really helped clean up the waterway to make it a safe place for us to enjoy today. The watershed itself became so different, so controlled, so much abused. Oh, it absolutely it was. When Europeans came to the area, saw the importance of the river and and what it could do for them, transportation and the wildlife living in the area, the fur traders came here. But one thing about rivers that people understood was that if you dumped something in it, it would just get carried off downstream. And most people for a long time didn't really give much thought to what happened to it once it was out of your sight. It became just a dumping ground This for anything you didn't want to see anymore. Most sewers emptied into the river. So many industries would be along the river and just pour wastewater into it. Even here in South Bend, the earliest city dump was right next to the river where Howard Park is today. Today, we would be horrified at, at what that would mean to that natural landscape, but years past, that wasn't something that people were all that concerned about. And enjoying that waterway wasn't on people's minds because it wasn't a nice place to be. What organizations working in the community to save and protect and restore the river? I'm aware of government-associated organizations that, that work very hard to promote the river, such as Venues, Parks, and Arts here in town or the St. Joseph County Parks Department to educate people about that through canoe rides and and other programming. Um, There's another group called the Friends of the St. Joseph River that works to help clean that up as well. Um, And even just getting the word out about the river and making people aware of what it means to people and what resources it still has to give kind of helps that effort, makes you maybe think twice about what your actions mean to the landscape around you. 
And and one really great thing that has happened recently is PBS Michiana, our WNIT station, has put out a documentary called Then, Now, and Always that chronicles the history of the St. Joe River, which you can see on their broadcast channel or also online for people to enjoy. And so I've heard a lot of really great comments about that, too, and people telling me about all the things that they didn't know and... Sometimes people kind of joke about raising awareness about a topic, but if you learn more about something, you always care more about it. And so just getting that word out and helping educate people make make them more conscientious of this wonderful thing we have here in town. When we speak about the St. Joseph River in its larger context, we've been talking a little bit about the watershed. Do you have any idea how many people actually depend or live in the watershed? I can tell you that it covers over 4,500 square miles. It covers 14 counties, which eight are in Michigan and six are in northern Indiana. And I know this because our scope is the history of the whole St. Joseph River Valley. So though we're located in South Bend and a lot of the things that we have, the artifacts we have, are related to South Bend due to our location, our scope is actually much broader than that, uh, is that whole 14-county span. So we're interested in all of that. And that's not just the river, but also the smaller tributaries that go to it as well. Growing up in Mishawaka, I lived on Willow Creek Drive, which at the end of it was Willow Creek that went to the St. Joseph River and then to Lake Michigan. And I remember as a kid, we would play in the creek, um, my friends and I, and I'd always think, you know, this water is going to be in Lake Michigan someday, which seemed impossibly far to me. I recently found a website that tracks one drop of water, what direction, what tributaries, what rivers, what lakes that one drop travels before it gets to one of the oceans. Very interesting. And of course, in the river, it goes in a couple different directions since it's supposedly the only river in North America that flows north and south and then to Lake Michigan. The St. Joseph River at one time emptied into the Gulf of Mexico. It joined with Kankakee River and then through the Mississippi River into the Gulf of Mexico. And due to geological processes, it was redirected north and then into Lake Michigan. So South Bend is at the south bend of the St. Joseph River. Not necessarily a geological rule that rivers must flow one way or the other. It just happens to be how most of them are. I'd like to skip back a little bit to something you just mentioned, and that is the river's connection to Lake Michigan. What is that? The St. Joseph River is certainly a very important one. For early European explorers and the native people before them, it was an extremely important route. You could travel up the St. Joe to South Bend and then take a fairly short portage to the Kankakee River and then continue on down to the Mississippi and the Gulf of Mexico. It was the most direct route from the Great Lakes and then south. We always say that La Salle discovered the portage, though it is guaranteed that the people who were living here before La Salle got here knew all about it and just showed him where it was. The, the first people who came to the area from Europe were here for trade, so that was one of the most important things to them was how are they going to get these things from 
one place to another. So this connection here made the River Valley and especially the St. Joe, Michigan, South Bend, and Niles, Michigan area extremely important to that early European settlement. So the river has changed course a little bit over the years due to human intervention. It is the way of industry and development to straighten out its meandering path, which has affected some of the wildlife and, and some of those historical landmarks along the way, um, where LaSalle and all the people after him landed and, and crossed over to head south. Okay, let's focus a little bit on the communities that have been developed, especially that of South Bend. What people are most interested in when they claim land in a place like this one are the resources it has to offer. The Europeans were not the first, though certainly the most aggressive. The native people, Potawatomi, uh, mostly to the north, and the Miami, mostly to the south, of course very interested in the river, and it was an important part of their lives especially the food, grow wild rice along the slower parts and in the marshier areas. And the Great Kankakee Swamp used to be up north in this part of the country. Um, they called it the Everglades of the North. When Europeans came and started developing things that was drained and much of that wild rice couldn't survive. So an effort to bring that back is, is underway by a lot of the native groups in the area. When Europeans first came here, of course, LaSalle was seeking glory. And then people like Pierre Navarre here in South Bend and William Burnett uh, in St. Joseph, Michigan, were mostly seeking money. They came to establish trading posts as part of the fur trade. And the greatest resource in North America for the fur trade was beaver pelts. The higher quality pelts were found to the north where winters were colder. And it was also advantageous to establish your trading posts along a transportation route that made a lot of sense for people to stop and, and make that trade and then send your goods to Europe. So you had people like William Burnett, who was one of the first European settlers in the whole River Valley, who set up shop right at the mouth of the St. Joe River. That was around 1780 and had a store and a warehouse and uh, actually kept his accounts in ledgers, which we are very fortunate to have here at the museum. I can tell you how much some of his things cost, but one of my favorites uh, at that time was he managed to get his hands on a couple of pecans, which I have to think were very rare, and he sold them for 24 livres each, uh, which is a, a unit of currency they used at the time, which translates to somewhere around $120 each in today's currency. So apparently very valuable. So the St. Joseph River empties out at St. Joe and Benton Harbor, Michigan. So would have been an extremely important place and an obvious place for a trading place. You know, when you come through Lake Michigan and then enter into the river, much like when you get off the highway, there's usually a gas station right there. In those days, there would be a trading post right there, too, for you to stop. The reference to the French has been made several times. There must have been at least a military garrison in that area. Yes. When LaSalle came here, he claimed almost the whole St. Joseph River for France. So this whole area was part of New France, is what they called it. And then in 1681, a French trading post was established in what's now Niles, Michigan, which is about 10 miles north of where I am now. 
And it was called Fort St. Joseph, so the fort along the St. Joseph. And it was one of the most important fortifications in the New World. Most of the mail went through Fort St. Joseph. At one time, nearly, you know, every important person in Europe would have known where Fort St. Joseph was. And it consisted of fortifications and then several buildings, like a home for the commander, barracks, a blacksmith. And that was owned by the French, and it also was a liaison with the native tribes. After the French and Indian War ended in 1761, the entire region was transferred to the British because that was part of the agreement. The British took a little bit different stance here in the area. When the French were in charge, and at the time, whoever held Fort St. Joseph held the entire St. Joseph River Valleys. It was kind of the capital of the region. Um, the French were focused on trade. They were focused on making money and strengthening relationships with the native people in the area to mutual benefit. The British were more interested in dominating the area and being in control. And that eventually led to a war called Pontiac's Rebellion in 1763, when the local Potawatomi took over Fort St. Joseph and killed most of the men there. So they talk about all the different people who held the area. Niles is called the, the city of four flags. It, it really should be five flags because the Potawatomi actually held the entire region for a little while as well. It was actually lost for a little while. Nobody knew where it was for many years, and eventually the archaeological site was found and is now a really great site where they still do excavations, and you can visit it. an open house every year. Um, they do a wonderful job interpreting that for visitors or for scholarly works, and that's through Western Michigan University. We have a great relationship with Western Michigan and the folks who run that site. We actually have quite a few artifacts from Fort St. Joseph. It was, quote-unquote, discovered as an archaeological site, and this was a hundred years ago. People knew that there was an area close to the river in Niles where you could find colonial items, things like projectile points or beads, metal goods that are typical of what you would find at a place like that. And there was a collector who had found a lot of those in the early 1900s and donated his entire collection to our museum. So we have several boxes of Fort St. Joseph items as well that we use very frequently for interpretation when we talk about the early history of the areas. So frequently, the students at the field school at Fort St. Joseph will take a day and come and visit our museum. What were primary industries? After that fur trade era, there was, uh, again, trading posts established here in South Bend. What naturally happens as an area develops is other industries come to town. And one of the earliest ones that you'll find along the river are mills, specifically flour mills. Of course, later other mills, woolen mills, lumber mills, various other industries that would be along the river because it was helpful for them to transport items. Or as electricity becomes more popular, there were a number of dams built across the river that would power the city. So, for example... The Oliver Chilled Plow Works was along the river, and they built a dam to power their factory as well as part of the city. Stevenson Mills here in town, which was a woolen mill in Mishawaka, the Mishawaka Woolen Manufacturing Company, by far the most popular place. And, and even here in South Bend, we dug races, which, you know, is a channel for the water to, to run through 
um, just for these industries. And uh, so they could build along this water site and use that water power to power the machinery that they have um, in their buildings. So the early settlers in that time period uh, here in South Bend were, were very focused on attracting um, those industries here in town. And so I've mentioned a lot of mills, but we also had a lot of ironworks um, foundries. You know, the Studebaker Brothers blacksmith shop um, obviously became a very important business in town. And the river is yet another reason for that, not because of its transportation or water power specifically, but because since the area was so swampy, we have a lot of natural deposits of iron ore that they call bog iron. So if you were in the blacksmithing trade, you could get the raw materials right here in town. You could get that bog iron, you could get wood from our copious forests at one time to to burn to smelt that ore and make anything you would want to here and they certainly did we ended up with the best-selling plow in the world some of the best known wagons and then cars in the world south bend was certainly um they used to call it world famed they actually put out a book in 1922 called south bend world famed that listed all of these industries that were here and and prospering. And that was all because of the river. Back to the mention you made of the plow. Of course, the plow is critically important. What is the name again of the plow company you mentioned? The plow company I mentioned uh, is colloquially called the Oliver Chilled Plow Works. It was the South Bend Iron Works uh, for about 50 years, and then they changed their name to match their branding. So if you've ever heard of an Oliver Plow, or an Oliver tractor, that was uh, kind of their star item. So James Oliver, who was a Scottish immigrant, came to Mishawaka in the 1830s and ended up working in one of those foundries and ultimately found a talent for invention. And what he did was invent a way of making a plow, which uh, I mentioned it was a chilled plow, and what that means is that the exterior surface of the share, which is the blade, the part that cuts through the soil, is cooled faster than the rest. So the plow is very durable, but um, also maintains its sharp edge, which other cast iron plows and, and were n would break more often or would dull very fast. And he also made them so that you could just swap out the edge and not the entire uh, piece that that attached to. So uh, farmers really liked that invention. James Oliver had dozens of patents during his lifetime. And then his son, Joseph D. Oliver, who went by JD, was, we call him the marketing genius of the company and really made it a worldwide brand. And they started making specialized uh, types of plows for different types of soil in different parts of the world. So there were some that were specifically for sandy soil in North Africa and the Middle East, or peaty soil in Scotland and the UK, or, you know, soil with a lot of clay, and they would market those to those specific places. And they were very well known, would travel all over the world, and um, had their factory right here in town. And they actually made plows here all the way until the 1980s. That's really something. I 
think I remember seeing Oliver equipment. Was that painted orange? Orange was an accent color, and it was used on their logo um, very prominently, but Oliver plows generally were green or unpainted. Um, Tractors were very, uh, they were green as well. Your story reminds me a little bit about the John Deere company story, specifically that the marketing genius for Deere and company was John Deere's son, Charles, and not so much the founder, John Deere himself. I think that's interesting that as the business develop, it's a son that takes over and directs the growth. I guess you need someone to come up with the ideas before you need someone to share them with the world, I suppose. But it might also be interesting to know that J.D., Oliver, and John Deere did not get along. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. I think that I think at one time there were a couple thousand plow manufacturers in the country. And obviously after a while there's a coalescing and many of them die off. But eventually strong ones tend to survive. Deer and Company, Oliver, International Harvester, you know, a great number of them. I'm sure they were fierce competitors. Absolutely. And especially when tractors started becoming more popular after World War I, and Oliver started developing theirs, but so did John Deere. And uh, the Oliver Company ended up merging with um, White and Hart Parr, and through a series of further mergers, the Oliver name fell out of use after a little while and then eventually went out of business. So though well-known here in town and uh, the Oliver Mansion is actually part of the History Museum, which we're very pleased to have here. It contains all original furnishings. So I, we actually have the family's belongings and their clothes and books and toothbrushes um, so we can uh, still share that history and, and uh, have something really special to show. Okay, so that's the Oliver story. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Studebaker. I didn't know the Studebaker connection to South Bend. What is that? Studebaker Brothers started a blacksmith shop, and they were best known for making wagons at the time, though like any of those foundries would make parts for other things too when they were starting out. If you got an order for uh, something else and you needed that money and you had the the people available, you would um, still make those parts. So, though, you know, much like Oliver, who made plows, but also made parts for Singer sewing machines, um, Studebaker made wagons in the early days, but also made parts for other things. But Studebaker got involved in making wagons for the U.S. military, uh, as well as other militaries abroad and earned a reputation there for having extremely reliable products that would hold up to a lot of wear and tear and got a lot of money from those contracts and were able to greatly expand their business. Is hydroelectric still generated on the St. Joseph River? Absolutely it is. There are still a number of dams across the St. Joseph River. Um, some of them are perhaps uh, kind of legacy dams that if they were taken down would alter the landscape upstream. Today there's 17 along the whole course of the river. 
And you have seen in the news that Notre Dame is planning to build a hydroelectric dam uh, along the river as well to um, help make sustainable power for the university. So still something that people are adding. Is there any story behind Notre Dame? Notre Dame? Uh, Got its start with the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi, who Leopold Pokagon, one of their leaders, during a time when a lot of the native people in the area were being forced to move west to reservations in in Kansas, mostly for the Potawatomi. Leopold Pokagon was very wise and knew that if his group of people converted to Catholicism and kind of assimilated into the ways that the white people in the area wanted them to be, that they would probably uh, be able to keep their own land. So he requested a priest come to his group of people and um, teach them. The priest that came in leading uh, the Catholic Church, sending those priests to the Pokagon people uh, here in this area, eventually led to the establishment of a school, and that school became Notre Dame University. So that group of people that lived along the river that took advantage of those resources and had that foresight and requested religious guidance eventually led to this university that um, everyone knows about now and is such a huge force in the area. Such an awesome and interesting commencement of the university. I suppose at some point in time, the priests and later the directors of the university knew precisely why they were there. They were there because it was a way to protect a group of indigenous people. I just think that's fascinating. They were all very smart people, so I'm sure they were aware right away, but the um, but it worked out as well as it could for the Pokagon Band, it seems. But um, where, you know, the, the Prairie Band in Kansas were originally from this area as well. Um, and so many of the people that once lived here um, were made to move and lost so much that it's really amazing that Leopold Pokagon was able to hang on to what he was able to keep. Okay, I'd like to skip ahead just slightly. And so many rivers have been developed and enhanced by recreational activities. Is that true about the St. Joseph? Absolutely. I mentioned mentioned that the river hasn't always been the cleanest, but as it has been cleaned up, it, it has certainly become uh, much more of a hub for recreation. You see a lot of people fishing in the river, and of course now um, one of those, uh, the East Race, has become a whitewater rafting course that was very unique when it was made, that they turned what had actually been filled in and then was re-excavated and turned into this recreational site um, that a lot of people thought was very unusual at the time. And we have come to just accept as a feature of town that you can just go to the river and do whitewater rafting um, in a, in a man-made site. And that's really fun for people. We have events that venues, parks and arts or other 
local groups put on where they put a zip line across the river and you can you can zoom right across there and enjoy that. And a lot of parks and, and river walks, we've installed river lights that light up that whole river walk area. There's concerts along the river now. And there had been pleasure boating for a period of time. There was a, a paddle boat that you could ride up and down the river some years back. But but then it, it seemed to have fallen out of favor for a little while. And uh, it, it's really nice that that's come back and that's really become a a big part of people's lives. Get a canoe from the parks department and, and canoe up the river. Connecting people to each other as well. It's a nice thing to have here. Though it may, you know, we know that it's beautiful and... For the most part, clean, though I was reading a story this morning about how many cars they've pulled out of out of it lately. But but that's, you know, all part of cleaning it up. And it may seem that rules preventing some of the industries in the area from dumping things into the river might not seem necessary because it's not dirty. But, you know, just one has to remember that that's why it's not dirty is is because um, we have to keep an eye on that kind of thing and, and make sure that it's... Um, something that our children and their children can continue to. This last year, with everything that's gone on in the world, uh, we've all, I think, had some time to think about what it means to enjoy what's in, in your home and in your surroundings when we've all not been able to travel or You know, I don't want to say people haven't been as busy, but I think we've all had to maybe stop and take a breath. And at the same time here, uh, for me professionally, we've been we've been talking a lot about the St. Joseph River um, in working together with WNIT on the documentary. We've also produced an exhibit that's currently on display here at the museum about the river as uh, part of that partnership. Um, and then also in talking with you. And at least for me, I feel that that's something that I really haven't appreciated as much as I should have uh, in my life here in the area. So so I encourage everyone to maybe think a little more about uh, what's in your town and what has made it uh, what it is today. And maybe go take a look at it and think about the people who uh, who made that possible and your natural resources that are that are a part of that. Very good, Christy Erickson. You've been a wonderful guest, very informative, very generous with your time and talents. Well, thank you. It's been a busy couple of months here at the museum, so uh, it's been kind of nice to be in a quiet place for an hour and just have a nice conversation.